This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, and William. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with James Hollis. James Hollis is an author, a psychoanalyst, and one of the world's most prolific Jungian thinkers. During our conversation, Jim talks about his life, the ideas of Carl Jung, listening to and honoring one's autonomous psyche, the importance of insight, courage, and endurance, modern life and society, men in therapy, and how one might live more wisely. Jim is a man of great depth and profound insight. I believe that his work, which I love and has had a deep effect on me, can be helpful to anyone seeking truth, meaning, and an authentic life. I hope you enjoy this conversation with James Hollis. All right, Jim. Well, uh, as I mentioned before we, we uh, started recording, I just wanted to say thank you for doing this. I know how busy you are, and uh, I've been wanting to meet you for a long time. So thanks for coming on the show. It's good to meet you. Well, you're welcome, Dan. Pleasure to meet you. Likewise. Um, I was thinking in the last day or so how to start this, and I thought that it might be useful to begin at the point in your life when you were about my age, which was when, as I understand it, you transitioned from mm-hmm. a life of academia into a different path, a different journey. And I'd love to spend a lot of this conversation talking about the big ideas within Jungian um, psychology and ideas that have influenced you. But I'd love to, if you can, have you paint the picture of who you were at that time when you made that transition. I know you were a professor, but mm-hmm. um, what do you remember from that time that caused that transition? Well, it's a fascinating story, and I continue to review it in my own mind. But um, as you said, uh, my original life was in academia, and I was kind of a driven thinking type. And I'd finished my doctorate by the time I was 27, and I had a full-time position at a university. I love teaching. I still do. I continue to teach up through this past weekend. Um, But I was hit at age um, 33, really with a significant life depression. And you have to ask yourself a question. Uh, When you have everything that you thought you wanted and needed, and you've sort of arrived there, um, why is your own psyche not cooperating? which is a question that doesn't normally occur to us. Our first thought would be, well, how quickly do I get rid of this? You know? So I entered my first hour of therapy in uh, Philadelphia in 1975 when I was uh, 35, right on schedule. You know, first line of Dante's Inferno is midway in life's journey. I found myself in a dark wood having lost the way. And as I got more and more interested in the process, I began to realize, well, this is not just about dealing with this um, momentary issue of depression. 
Uh, it's more about, um, you know, what's your whole journey about? What have you been pursuing? What are the driving engines and so forth? So somewhere in those early months, I decided, well, I probably want to go to Zurich to further this process. At that point, I had no conscious thought of moving from academia into training as a union analyst, but I thought I'll go there with my family to um, sort of explore this process more fully, as well as I knew part of what my own conscious awareness was, that I was wanting to live in Europe for a while and experience a different world there. So at age 37, the week that Elvis died, uh, we wound up in, in Zurich and were there off and on for um, five years, really, in residence. And the sixth year was writing a thesis. So um, as I got deeper and deeper into the process and I started realizing I, I was not only finding out some important things about myself, but I was uh, deepening my awareness of the mysteries of the human psyche and it came to ask a question other than I would have thought of at the beginning. Our first natural question is how quickly do I get rid of this depression? And I began to ask a question that from the standpoint of depth psychology, we ask all the time, namely, why has this come to you? Why has your own psyche autonomously withdrawn its approval and support? from the places in which you wish to invest this energy. Uh, what is it asking of you? What might it want? And those are not the first questions that occur to us, but that began to become more and more apparent. I also started working with patients for the first time. I was also working um, part-time in a psychiatric hospital for three years. And I found myself uh, valuing the conversation with adults in a way that you can't with 18 and 19 year olds. There's nothing wrong with being 18, 19 years old, but there are layers of human experience, awareness, perhaps layers of suffering, which deepen the dialogue. So I found myself for the next few years after I returned to America, continuing my academic appointment, but increasingly feeling the center of gravity within me moving to the, to the practice and continuing to uh, appreciate the kind of conversation you can have at midlife that is not yet possible for younger people. And so uh, it was probably in 1988, 89 that I left academia formally, though I've continued to work as an adjunct uh, on dissertations and uh, graduate classes and that sort of thing too. And really have spent the second half of my life in what I'll call adult education meaning teaching primarily analytic psychology and its various ramifications to uh, adult audiences scattered around you know, North America and, and additionally with other countries as well. So it's a somewhat short but long answer to your question. <laughs> I know in, uh, first of all, I, I love your work. And I know in one of your books, you uh, gave a, a story, I believe, from when you were teaching in academia and one of the students said to you, you know, when I get older, Dr. Hollis, I want to be like you. And mm -hmm. you, you asked him what he meant by that. Mm -hmm. um, and he, I believe his response to you was someone who lacks feelings, someone who is utterly rational, uh, mm -hmm. who is directing their life solely with their intellect. And I'm curious at that transitionary point for you, when you began more and more, I think you said as the gravity was pulling you in another direction, 
what was the interstate like for you? How, how did you decide eventually to move into psychoanalysis as a, a more serious direction for your life? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, to go back to that student, <laughs> you know, only a sophomore. And of course, that's made up of two Greek, two Greek words, wise fool. All right? That's what <laughs> sophomore means. Only a sophomore would say to an instructor, I want to be like you, a half a human being, right? I think that was a compliment. But, you know, bless his soul, he did. And um, I remember being uh, stunned by that at the time. And it sent me, it was one of those clues that made me think, I wasn't absent of feeling, of course. It's just that everything got strained through the, the thinking function, you know? And so part of the work of the second half of life really was beginning to make greater friends with the rest of one's own personality and the rest of one's psyche. Um, as I said, I was not lacking in feeling. It was rather I was often using the life of the mind to defend against the magnitude of the feeling. And so in the long run, that's something like putting a tourniquet around your leg and then wondering why it doesn't work so well. You know, there's a part of your life that's numbed. And once you take that tourniquet off, it doesn't feel good. It hurts for some time. But without being able to go through that, one is never going to be able to restore the full circulation to one's psychic life. So uh, it was step by step. I don't think it occurred overnight. It was one thing that I, I felt, you know, what better way to spend your life than exploring these deeper questions which I thought I was exploring in academia, and to some degree you do, but also the honorable way or the honor it represents to be asked to share other people's journey. I'm 81 and a half now, and I think constantly about retirement. And then I ask myself the obvious question, what are you doing that would be so more, some, as much interesting as it is uh, talking with individuals about their dreams, their symptoms, their issues going on, and, and, and so forth? So it's, it's a privilege, it's an honor, and it's also a tremendous responsibility yeah. because one also takes on, to some degree, the burden of their, their suffering and the burden of their task, which they have to face. And I must say, every therapist, I suspect, would agree we learn a lot from our folks that we work with too. We can't help but see aspects of our own lives involved in, in what they're going through as well. So I think the one thread that's been consistent all the way through is the love of learning and the love of teaching, of passing it on. So I think the teaching function is partly through Zoomcast, such as we're having right now, through um, uh, writing books, and of course, through the therapeutic process. When I just say, now let me add this as a footnote. When we use the word psychotherapy, again, if you translate it directly from the Greek, it means listening or attending to the soul. That automatically puts a higher premium on the depth of that conversation. We're not just talking about your behaviors. We're not just talking about the thought processes that have you make one decision versus another. We're certainly not talking about the biological process per se, although we include all of those functions. We're talking ultimately about meaning. What does it mean to be a human being? What is the meaning of your life? Are you experiencing it in a meaningful way? And if not, why not? What blocks your way 
And, and that's what we have to begin to address. Yeah. I love the observation, which you noted already, that in moments of you know, temporary or even serious depression, asking the question, why has this come? Why has there been an autonomous rebellion by yourself against yourself, against your uh-huh. ego decisions? And I, you know, I know you have written at length about currently the amount of anesthetizing and distraction that goes on in our culture that I think detracts from that kind of questioning and, and, uh, gleaning insight. And speaking of insight, one of my favorite, um, observations that you've made about, you know, young to other people as a, as a methodology for how to think about what to do in situations like that is, um, that psychology and psychological insight can bring insight, but really afterwards, there's another requirement, which are moral qualities, which you've written uh-huh. about, which is courage, following through on what feels right to you, and then endurance of actually persisting yeah. in honoring what uh, you feel is right for yourself. And from what I understand about your personal journey to where you are now, you're no exception to that. It, there was an element, obviously, of insight that you've already spoken, spoken to, but then there was the decision time to actually move into another phase of your life. And I, I feel like a lot of people I know, probably a lot of people that everyone knows, kind of already know what they need to be doing, but lack the second and third qualities to follow through on that. H- how did you, in, those, in that moment specifically in your life, generate the reserves to be able to, to make a transition like the one that you made? Well, that's, again, a very profound question. Um, Jung actually said to therapists, you need to ask the question, uh, what task is this person's neurosis helping him or her avoid? And his conclusion was that in most cases, people have some idea that they really, really need to address their marriage or they really, really need to overthrow the power of fear in their life and step into what their life is calling them to. Now, talk is cheap. That's that's when it gets difficult, as you just said. And I think two things moved me at the time. One was the depression hurt so much, and I mean that literally. But secondly, I think from childhood on, I was more invested in the idea of uh, meaning than of happiness. Mm. I'm not in any way opposed to happiness, of course, But people have this illusion or delusion, I suppose it's better, that they're supposed to be happy all the time. Well, where is that written down? You know, Um, know, happiness is being in right relationship to your own soul at a given moment. And that's obviously going to be transitory because life is forever flowing forward. And it's also going to be contextual. If you're starving, a plate of food will make you happy. If you're thirsty, you'll have a glass of water, and that makes you happy. But too much of anything becomes surfeited in a prison of its own kind. So we need to ask ourselves, what what is it really that is meaningful to me? And not just in a kind of trivial way. It's, It's more about what is confirmed from inside. And that sometimes involves trial and error. Sometimes you have to try some things. Through the years, I've had so many people say, well, I always want to do this. And you know, there's a but coming in that sentence. Mm. 
And the but is the ostensible reason why it didn't happen. Uh, I had children, you know, I had to pay the college tuition or the mortgages or something like that, all of which may be true. But over time becomes our way of avoiding an encounter with our own soul. Then you have to ask yourself, why is the soul going to treat you so well if you continue to ignore it or abuse it? And you have to ask yourself the question at the end of this journey, if we're conscious and you look back, I mean, anybody who's thoughtful is going to have regrets. You know, I could have done this, I could have done that. But if you ask yourself the very generic question, did I show up in, as best I could in the way I was supposed to in this journey? That's a telling question because something inside of us knows the difference. Something inside of us responds. And it's another reason why Jung said neurosis is suffering. It has not yet found its meaning. Hmm. Or similarly, he said elsewhere, he said, um, neurosis is inauthentic suffering. In other words, you, you don't get a, a journey pain-free. Yeah. The question is, which pains are enlarging to you, which ones are, you know, diminishing to you, something in your heart and soul knows the difference. And if you don't know, you keep addressing it and it'll become very clear to you. Yeah. One of the questions I've suggested to a lot of folks as a, as a kind of clarifier of those junctures in our lives where we have to make some large decisions, which path enlarges you and which path diminishes you? And again, usually we know immediately, intuitively. And if you don't know, you keep asking. It'll come to you three in the morning, a week from now. It'll come to you in a dream. It'll come to you while you're driving down the highway and your ego's distracted and the psyche is working on it and it'll bring these things to the surface. Yeah. I, I so identify with you know the description I understand about you earlier in your life as just a dominating you know, uh, kind of filtering everything in your life through the, the brain and through the intellect and trying to appear as though you are this utterly rational person. There certainly is a place for that, I think, in, in any human life. Um, but I, I think what has spoken to me so much about your work is you, you were using the analogy of, of putting a tourniquet on your leg. Um, I have felt that way about certain components of human life, whether it's, you know, the feeling function or intuition and a recognition at this point in my life of, uh, you know, uh, removing a lot of those sources that I think every child has, you know, I know you write a lot about a childhood and about the, the state that all children seem to know instinctively what makes sense to them, what feels right for them. And getting that back, uh, I think, is something that can be very helpful for adults as they begin to journey journey forward in their life. I want to transition into Jung himself and the ideas that you think really matter um, related to his work that might be helpful for for people or just thought provoking for people who are alive now. Um, I was formerly a religious person. And it deeply spoke to me when I was a child. And I think I just, in high school and certainly in college, I no longer could hold 
a belief in something that I didn't believe was true in the, in the traditional sense of Catholicism, which was the religion in which I was raised. But Jung has seem, seems to have a unique ability to merge the mystical with the secular and the real world with the mysterious aspects of life. Uh-huh. That's a meandering way to get into a question of, of just asking you, maybe even just for yourself, when you were beginning to be, get more familiar with his work, what resonated in him uh, or his work or his observations that made you dedicate so much of your life to mm-hmm. maybe even just the questions that he was positing with other people? Well, you've asked me about five good questions. I know. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, I'll, I'll start with the last one and then head to the next, the last one. Um, and I may not remember the early ones, but um, I began, as, as, I, as we've indicated, as a very personal investment in trying to figure out why my inner life had revolted. Uh, and I, I could have turned to other therapies. In fact, I did for a moment, but I found it was superficial. Um, for, for Jung, he was asking always questions of meaning, um, always asking questions of importance. What is important in your life? He himself asked himself the question around 1900, what is my myth? And by myth, he didn't mean falsehood. He meant what are the values and the charged images to which my psyche is in service or ought to be in service? And he realized that it wasn't that of his father and his, his father was a clergyman and he had five uncles who were clergy too. So he really had a load up in his family and he, he approached them with the questions that mattered to him. And they repeatedly said to him, well, we don't question these things. We just, we just believe. And he found in particular with his father who had a lifelong serious depression, debilitating depression. He said, Sadly, I came to respect to, to lose respect to my father because I felt he was unable to have the courage to ask the questions that mattered to him. So I, he said I had to realize I had to pick up this issue in my own life and address it in the ways that, that mattered to me. Now, I might go on to say, Dan, that I suspect you are still very deeply religious because these questions matter to you. Mm-hmm. Why are you spending part of your life having a podcast around issues that matter to you? Well, that's part of your religiosity. Um, you know, the life of the spirit is not just satisfied by, the, by buying the newest shiny thing. If that were true, we would all have arrived at that point because we would have known it by now. But you also realize how paltry such purchases or such expectations I mean, the contemporary religions of America are narcissism, hedonism, and materialism, in a sense that more people spend their energy there in self-absorption, looking for a good time, and of course, when you don't buy something to fill the gap, and a huge addictive culture out there to anesthetize it all when it doesn't feel right. Well, again, if those things work, let's join the crowd. But they don't. That's the sad point. Let's be very pragmatic. I'm not being judgmental. I'm being pragmatic about this. So I I think part of what Jung's psychology is about is that it is teleological. There's another one of those Greek words that means it's purposeful. It's unfolding its own ends. I think the human psyche has two purposes. One is healing. 
And the second is growth. By healing, I mean this continuous um, uh, sort of intrapsychic balancing that's going on inside of us. When some we get out of uh, out of our own balance, which is going to happen any given day, our psyche is not silent. It, it protests. It sends up signals called symptoms of various kinds. But it's also teleological in the sense it's always looking for meaning. And meaning is going to vary from person to person. There's no formula for that. And if you can find that in an institutional form, in a way that truly resonates in your heart and soul, then terrific, more power to you. But if you can't, then you have to have the courage to pursue it in your own way. Remember the theologian, I had questions such as you did when I was in high school and early college. And I remember the day I read the theologian Paul Tillich, who said, that that really faith and religious concern was the the capacity to have ultimate concern. And I thought, well, you know, by that standard, I'm very religious. I have all kinds of ultimate concerns. That is to say, what really matters in this journey? What really matters in my life? Not what I'm surrounded by or what I've I've been told but what seems to be confirmed inside of me. I use that word resonates, resonate, to resound. When something's right for you, it resonates within you. When it doesn't, it doesn't. Let's say you walk into an art museum and you're moved by a painting. You feel frightened by it. You feel um, sad when you see it. Another person walks right by. Now, which one of them is right? Well, it's kind of a foolish question, isn't it? What speaks to each person is going to be registered inside. And part of what happens in our formation, our development, is we lose contact with that kind of qualitative evaluation that's going on continuously. We have evaluative systems, one of which is the feeling function. In other words, I don't choose feeling. You don't choose feeling. You can choose to repress it, project it, anesthetize it. But it's an autonomous, qualitative analysis of as how, uh, how life is going on as seen by your own psyche, not by you. Mm. In other words, you don't even know what you feel until something happens. And then you, you have an invitation to consider that. Secondly, our energy systems. We can mobilize energy in service to tasks, and we often do and have to, and that's marvelous. But if you keep doing that in the wrong direction, it leads to burnout, depression, self-medication, and so forth. It's like the time Joseph Campbell said, you can spend your life climbing the ladder only to realize you're placed against the wrong wall. So the, the energy systems, when you're doing what's right for you, the energy's there. Now, every one of my books has been written in the evenings at the end of a long workday. I don't take time off to write. I write at the end of a long workday. And because the energy is there, when I'm touching what is important to me, the energy rises. Otherwise, fatigue takes over. Thirdly, we have dreams that speak to us in a continuing way. Sleep research tells us that we average six dreams per night. That's 42 a week. No one remembers that many, but it's very clear. If you stay and pay attention over time, you begin to realize something inside of you 
is commenting on your life. Freud told the story about a young man who didn't like the content of his dreams. And he said to Freud, he said, but I'm not responsible for those. And Freud said, well, who do you think is responsible for your dreams? And of course, fourth is that issue, most important of all, and that's meaning. We can go through anything. We can bear anything if we experience it as meaningful. And yet the most outwardly rewarding of things quickly becomes stale and, and, and boring and loses its energy when we're, in a sense, spending our energies in the wrong place. So it's not that we don't have clues. We're, we're swarming in clues. We knew it as children, but because we're tiny and vulnerable and dependent, we have to defer to what's going on in our environment, make adaptations. And in time, you wind up disconnecting from your, your authority. That's why I've often said that the task of the first half of life is about ego building. In other words, I have to build enough sense of myself and become functional enough to meet my parents' expectations, to, to, to deal with what the teacher wants from me, to, to cope with playmates on the playground, uh, ultimately with, with contemporaries and partners, employee, employment, employers, and so forth. But, you know, in, in the end, what I've achieved is a set of adaptations. That's why often at midlife, our own psyche's protest begins to break through the floorboards, as it did in my life and it does in the life of many people. And it doesn't have to be midlife chronologically. It could be when the children head off to, to school or marriage or wherever. It can be when a partner dies and one realizes how dependent one has been on that person. Or the, it can happen when the person has to move geographically or they lose their job or something of that sort. Those are moments when it all comes breaking back upon your shore. And then the question is, what is the right path for you? How are you going to figure that out? And we have the courage to live that. It sounds very simple, but that's the project of the second half of life, which is the recovery of personal authority. And what is that? Well, of all the traffic we have coursing through us at any given moment, all the outer world <laughs> giving us instructions of one kind or another, and all the inner traffic, there are threads there that come from your own depths. The question then is, which threads are yours? That's the discernment process, sorting and sifting, sorting and sifting over time. That's discernment. Second, then, comes the issue of courage. Can I live that in the world? If I can, I will have the support hmm. of my own psyche. I will find that whatever the struggles are, they're worth paying. Whatever the sacrifices, they're worth it because something inside feels right. And you can't buy that. Yeah. There's a great uh, young quote. I've, I've got a, a quote section on my website. And between you and Carl Jung, I think you have something like 60 or 70 on there that I <laughs> reference a lot. The, the first one on there is uh, an Emily Dickinson, Dickinson line, which I know you, you've quoted many times, which is the sailor cannot see the north but knows the needle can. Uh, somewhat relatedly, there's a, an, another Jungian quote, I believe this is from him, that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. And 
you know, that the people that come and see you, I would imagine are in that transitionary phase. Um, oftentimes where they are seeking what is next for them. And I would be curious to know how you shepherd those conversations. What strategies or questions do you tend to ask to tease some of that out? You were talking about the traffic internally. How does that process work for you that you think might be helpful for people? Mm-hmm. Well, let's could we just back up again a little bit? Please. And and you you ran by two very important quotes. Um, one from Emily Dickinson from 1862, in which she said, the sailor cannot see the north, but knows the needle can. I think what she was intuiting, and she you can tell from her other writings that we have, she had serious doubts, religious doubts, cultural doubts, et cetera, et cetera. And I think she was um, tumbling to the fact that for many people, the outer forms were losing some of their power of connectivity that they'd once had or reportedly had, and was recognizing the need for an inner compass. If you have an inner compass, you can always find true north, which allows you to make decisions that ultimately are right for you. If you don't have a compass, then you're at the mercy of whatever forces are at work around you. And and you're really caught in that warp and woof of that external world once again. Secondly, excuse me, the Jung quote is a very scary quote. (laughs) He said, what you've not made conscious inwardly will have a tendency to come at you from the outer world and you'll call it fate. You know, why did you choose that person for your partner? Why this career? Excuse me one second. Um, why, why did you wind up avoiding this opening in your journey? Those, those are very troubling questions. We can always <laughs> recognize that we have to deal with the unconscious because there are things of which I do not know. See, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. So I can't literally say at any given moment, but what it does require of me that I be more thoughtful. So I've often asked people, (coughs) pardon me, I spoke all morning and now it's just beginning to get a little raggedy here. Um, We we, we can, in a sense, address in any given moment, where's this coming from in me? What's that about really? Many times a good choice or a good behavior may be coming from an old place of codependence or maybe a place of fear, that old defense, and then it's not so good, is it? Mm. Now, to get to your your main question here, and again, I apologize. Each person's presenting issues are different, of course. At the moment, I'm not seeing anybody under 50. Um, I don't advertise. I never did. It's always been by word of mouth. I can't take any more clients. I have every hour filled. And each person comes with some expectation or understanding of what they want to address. So I always want them to set the table, depending on their circumstances. And a few people are, uh, say, post-retirement, and they're really looking at um, what has this journey been about? Um 
what can my dreams tell me about this? How do I constructively live with aging, infirmity, facing mortality? Uh, these are large, important questions. Uh, I get fewer ones right now, <laughs> given that demographic of should I marry this person or not? Or should I try that new career? Although once in a while that comes up. And certainly in my earlier life, I, I saw a lot of younger folks for whom those were the pressing issues. But there's no formula other than to try to see what sort of question they're asking. You, because you have to ask this generic question. Um, why would a person go talk to a total stranger and talk about their personal life unless they had the belief that A, and this is probably a mistaken belief, that person has secrets that they'll reveal to me for a fee, of course, and they'll give me some magic, some magic pill, some magic uh, insight, and that will allow my journey to be so much smoother. Or, or because something is hurting and, and they, they need some perspective on that. Or often there's a kind of undiagnosed ache inside, an ache that has always been there, a, a, a certain kind of disquietude. Mm. Going back to yourself, the fact that you took those values seriously enough to question them does itself make you a religious person. Hmm. The folks who say you have to believe X, Y, or Z to be religious are people who are trying to firm up their own insecurities at the moment. Because an honest person is going to question a lot of things in life, and frankly, you should. Hmm. Because it's not necessarily your personal experience. It's something strained through long traditions or strain through the, uh, the majority of people. I remember as a child even having questions about what I was told and observed. And I remember thinking, this doesn't make sense to me or I, I, it, it doesn't you know, resonate inside. But then I thought, you know, you're a kid. I remember literally having that question. You're a kid. When you get to be a big person, it all makes sense to you because it appears to be making sense to these people. <laughs> And later I came to realize they didn't know what was going on either. I mean, a, a corollary fantasy I had was that somebody knew what was going on in the world. Well, I grew up and realized not many people, if any, know what's going on in the world. So uh, that's when you have to really take seriously the question of personal authority. If it's not resonating in your depths, you better take a, better take a hard look at it. You may be living someone else's journey. Oscar Wilde said, most people are actually living someone else's life. And there's truth to that. You know, I'm living what I see around me or what I think people expect. Because part of the adaptation and survival of a child sometimes depends upon fitting in. We're not here to criticize that. We understand that may be obligatory given the circumstances. What child can leave home and set out whole, carrying a suitcase and make its way in the world? You know, only in Charles Dickens, I guess. And, and yet, yet every day, something inside protests. And one can't lose contact with that something inside that knows what's right for you. I think that's what had happened to me because I was so goal-driven 
um, and and learning to play the game out there, the academic game. Um, you know, Arthur Schlesinger said once, academic politics is so vicious because the stakes are so trivial. Well, when that's the ball game you're in, you learn to play the game. And that's why I think my psyche had to revolt. Now, I didn't think at the time, oh, I'm starting a second half of life. This is going to be interesting. Or I didn't think, I wonder if this has meaning and purpose in my life, and I ought to respect it. No, like anybody else, I thought, how do I juggle all of these outer things going so well with what it feels like inside? And I couldn't solve that question. I had to live it through for the next few years and find my way to understand what that was really meaning to me. Yeah. You know, to some degree, this is why I think in the current context of our society, your work is so important because as I travel around America and talk to people in America, you know, I know if, if a couple of things have happened during my lifetime. One, the country has just become officially much less religious than it was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that space that was filled in people's lives, even if they weren't fundamentalists, was a space for depth, reflection, insight, self-inquiry. And I look around the country now at how polarized people are, how distrustful people Uh seem to be in conversation. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the messaging from your work as I understand it, as I have read it, is about, you know, a lot of that venom that I see socially, I view as overt projection from people just taking out that inner anxiety on their political opponents or people that they perceive as the the other or the enemy. And the idea of working through your own anxiety, working through your own problems, individuating, right? Trying to get a grasp on where you want to go. And I think for people that have a decent purchase on their own, on their self and where they think their life is going, they're much less apt to be, you know, toxic personalities or um, incredibly distrustful or judgmental towards other people. A long statement there, but I I know for decades you have been seeing people who have, as you said, walk into a stranger's office and tell them their most pressing (laughs) problems. What are you seeing in America now? What what kind of, um, you know, if anything, issues that are repetitive that you think, if if you agree with my assessment of the of the country right now, are are causing that kind of division, suspicion. Mm-hmm. Um, anxiety. Well, it all comes down to one thing, Dan. If you if you look through all of the issues, and that is change, mm. especially the rapidity rapidity of change. Um, for my parents, who were born both in 1911, there were what I call fixities. That's my invented word fixed categories of being. There were very clear definitions, limitations, marching orders, and scripts for what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a woman. There were very clear racially defined lines. 
There were very clear uh, statements of moral expectation. Right and wrong was highly collectivized. Um, there, there was a, a kind of implicit and explicit understanding of you know, minorities, ethnic groups, uh, sexual preferences, and so forth. And, and what happened in this last century, particularly accelerated in the 1960s, was the erosion of those fixities that we all know. See, my parents would have believed, and their generation would have believed, and I was born to believe in 1940, that uh, those categories were either ontological, which is to say in the nature of being itself, or divinely ordained. Mm. We now know them to be social constructs created by human beings. And social constructs can be deconstructed because that's what's been happening. It's called change. And so while it is liberating people, it also induces in the body politic anxiety about change because the human ego is, is a very anxious, nervous little creature. Um, it runs around all the time. Its chief uh, function is to preserve its little domain to, to be in as much control as it can. And, of course, its control then extends to trying to decide in some sort of literalization of the difficult questions so that the level of anxiety is reduced. You mentioned the word fundamentalist. There's a fundamentalist in each of us, but it doesn't have to dominate. The fundamentalist in whatever field it may be, religious, political, psychological, whatever, is the most frightened part of us. Because what it's trying to do is cast out doubt. Doubt is the <laughs> doubt's what gets you an education. Doubt's what leads you to discover the next next thing that might be better. But doubt destabilizes many egos. The more immature or the more threatened the ego, the more doubt has planted its black flag, and the whole enterprise feels shaky. So fundamentalism tries to define what's right and wrong and in ultimate terms, who's good, who's not good, uh, dictate moral values and, and, and maintain essentially the status quo of those alleged fixities. Well, the truth is <laughs> the cat's out of the bag and we're not going back to a non-pluralistic society. We're not going back to old fixed moralities. It's too late. But what you're seeing is an extraordinary, and it's happening in more than one country, it's happening in most, most countries, extraordinary effort to go back to an earlier time, whether it's make America great again, or try to reestablish the old time religion, or, or whatever. And you can, you can track the level of anxiety in all of this. Anxiety is not itself pathological. Anxiety is part of being a human being. It, it, it alerts us. But when it governs your behaviors, it can produce some pretty strange creatures. So, for example, the um, way in which change is greeted simply by a hardened opposition to change indicates that it's really not about the change. It's about what one would have to enlarge to, to in order to um, you know, be able to contain that change. 
So, you know, if we have a more inclusive society at every level, it's richer for everyone. Now, of course, for many people, that translates to them losing what they consider their innate privileges, their innate power, based, again, on these ontological fantasies or fantasies of divinity, when, in fact, these have always been human constructs. And, again, change is not going to be overthrown. It can be resisted, and we have enormous resistance in this country. But in the long run, change has happened. It's the nature of nature itself. And we're not going back to where we were, no matter how immediate the uh, setbacks may be. Yeah. You you listed a few of the qualities that I think you uh, regard as um, some of the 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 challenges or the uh, pathologies of modern life. Some of them being ad- addictiveness and um, the the narcissism. We all, I certainly include myself in this to some degree, have aspects of that in our personality. And as you look around at both your patients and the culture, I want to just underline your observations about the primary plagues is too strong of a word, but the, the obstacles that you feel like most people uh, or a lot of people might be facing that are inhibiting them from their own. Uh, this is another one of my favorite quotes of, of yours or yours and, and that you've popularized that I think is from young, that the psyche wants two things. You've already noticed this or observed this uh, growth and self-healing. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the primary blockers currently that are um, disallowing people from actually developing in that way? Well, again, the enemy is always anxiety. Um, you know, in investigative journalism, they typically said, follow the money trail. Well, in my profession, we follow the anxiety trail because as reductionistic as it sounds, a good percentage, if not the great majority of our behaviors come back to fear and anxiety management, which again is natural. Um, we are sensitive and vulnerable creatures and life is difficult and the end, it kills you. So have a nice day, right? It's natural that we have all kinds of systems, conscious and unconscious systems for our protection. If a car is coming at you, you step out of the way, you know, stop at stop signs, that sort of thing. Except when some other complex stands in the way, like, oh, I'm not going to get a vaccination. You know, I don't want anybody telling me what I ought to do with my own body, you know. Well, okay, it, you know, if it, you, you live in a scientific era and you've profited from it already with all of your other inoculations from childhood on, but this is where you're going to take your stand. It's going to jeopardize you and many of the folks around you. So you can see how a complex can easily um, transform itself into, say, a social movement or into a position of rigidity in the life of one person or another. Um, I I remember a number of years ago, uh, reading an interview with the uh, Dalai Lama, and someone said to him, "Um, what if uh, science uh, demonstrated to your satisfaction that one of the central tenets of your belief was not true? What would you do? And the Dalai Lama said, I changed my beliefs. 
I thought that was marvelous. It was classic Buddhistic non-attachment, ego non-attachment. You see, we need an ego to function in the world. It's our interface with the world. The problem is the ego is often, you know, at the mercy of its invasions by various complexes, one or another. Rather, the Dalai Lama could have said, well, I'll just reject that science, which is what a lot of people do in the modern era. Well, they do so at their peril, but you can see that the calling here is anxiety that makes that decision, um, not some openness to the possibility of growth and change. So uh, again, the fundamentalist is in all of this. We have to recognize that. But the more that dominates, the more it's an anxiety disorder. That's the point. Where the ang- It's one thing to have anxiety. It's something else to have an anxious life. It's one thing to have fear. It's something else to have a fear-driven life. And, and those are the enemies of our, of our journeys, you know, fear and anxiety, basically. Yeah. Yeah, there's a quote that, uh, another quote that you've observed that I love that I'll probably butcher, but it's something that... Um, the spirit of evil is the diminishment of the life force by fear and only boldness can deliver us from that fear. Yes. Uh, I've, I've read that many, many times. And I, I wonder for yourself, I, I, I love the analogy, the story the image you just painted of when you see a car coming at you, you step out of the way, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe this is where discernment comes in of identifying the difference between something you should be fearful of and avoid and a fear and anxiety that's in you that, you know, you have a bit of a calling to go pursue. It's, it's, it's enduring in you that, um, and maybe that is the difference is, is an enduring signaling from within that. Yes, this is something that's very difficult, will be very difficult, whether that's a conversation or a professional pursuit or a relationship you want to go after uh, to not allow the fear to win. That's right. That's right. Well, and first of all, let me give you an example. Newtonian physics worked for us for approximately four centuries. It sent us to the moon. It was that marvelous exchange when um, once there was a question from Houston to um, one of our rockets, um, what's guiding the ship out there? Meaning, I think they thought, are you on automatic pilot or one of you at the wheel? And the response was Newton. I love that. Yeah. Because they're saying the basic principles of physics that Newton articulated back in the 17th century are, are working. You see, they apply not only on this earth, but out here. Hmm. However... <laughs> We also have post-Newtonian physics. And if you're a physicist and you run into phenomena that contradict or are not explicable in Newtonian physics, then you have to go back to the drawing board. Hmm. And that's what's been happening really since the second decade of uh, the last century, really for 100 years now plus. And, And we know, for example, an electron can move from one orbital path to another orbital path without traversing the distance in between. Well, that violates everything I learned in high school physics. You know, how could that be? Well, the physicists, you see, are themselves having to face, and most of them do heroically face, the inadequacy of their previous model. So they have to say, my previous model will serve in these areas, but in other areas, I have to develop a new model. 
And what I've loved about some of the comments from contemporary physicists, most of them say, we ourselves don't understand what we're seeing because our way of seeing doesn't account for it. But we can't not see what we're seeing. Well, that's a marvelous example of the flexible ego that is open to change. That's how we grow and develop. If you didn't have some of this, you'd be staying in kindergarten, metaphorically, all of your life. And and it's the capacity to take in larger questions. Another way of putting this is the ego is interested in small questions. You know, how can I stay safe? That's important. How can I, you know, pay my bills? That's important, et cetera. But large questions get you a large journey. A large question is like, you know, (laughs) what is this life journey really about? What is it I need to learn here that I haven't learned before? Where is life taking me? Those are larger questions. And the smaller the question, the smaller the journey. Larger the question, the larger the journey. I think that's part of what I was recognizing before I recognized it consciously back there in my late 20s and early 30s, that I thought the um, formal study of knowledge from academia would prove to be sufficient. Well, it wasn't by any means. There's a whole world that moves and shakes us from inside that has nothing to do with the life of the mind, but it has a lot to do with the life of the soul and about which we know so little, and which we are constantly finding our ego positions challenged and undermined. Jung himself in his memoir speaks of his own process, and frequently he says, here's another thing I didn't know about myself, and it felt like a defeat. Mm. Well, why would it be a defeat? Well, because the ego is caught in the fantasy I'm the boss. I know who I am. I'm in charge. I have proper knowledge. Well, dream on, fellow. Right? Here's something else you don't know, and it's it's you too. And you also have to begin to take account of those factors that work within you of which we know so little. Yeah. It, it, I think you're right that it's really the doubt uh, that causes such concern and inner turmoil in people who have fixities in their life that have an outlook that they want to be true and enduringly. So last night when I was rereading one of your books, I I came across a, a line of a woman who I think refused to participate in a Jungian session because she had learned that one of her daughters or friends had gone to see a Jungian and it had resulted in a divorce. And she refused to engage with a a methodology where such transitions might be the end result. You know, I'm, I'm old enough now where I have friends who are divorced um, or who are considering divorce. And yeah, these are the practical and often most important aspects of life for people and the most challenging times for people when they are, are dealing with you know, the need to transition um, or they're, they're just going through a Maybe they are more conscious of who they are than were than where who they were ten years ago, and it's time to opt out of a long term relationship. I would love to, given how important relationships are to people, I'd love to give you a, an opportunity to speak at any length that you would like about you know the difference between a relationship that truly has been exhausted and should probably 
move on, that people should go on separate journeys and one in which, as we all know, relationships are challenging at times and need some, some endurance. Mm -hmm. How do you discern between the two? Well, first of all, that woman who refused to go to these classes, which, I mean, her friend was inviting her, um, presumed that the role of the therapist was to shoehorn uh, the couple back into their marriage in some way at any cost. Yeah. Well, you remember the famous joke by uh, uh, Groucho Marx. He said, marriage is a great institution, but who wants to be institutionalized? Right. <laughs> well, it is a great institution. I happen to value it. However, I don't automatically apply, applaud when I see somebody who's been married for 50 years because I don't know what's happened to their soul inside. Has it yeah. grown? Has it developed? Was that relationship a container, a platform whereby both parties groove more nearly into their potential or was it contract constrict uh, sort of contracted at a, a at a certain point in their development which they may have left behind long ago mm-hmm. but for all sorts of reasons rationalizations fears they stay locked in in that so you can't say outside whether a relationship is healthy to for a person or not you need to know what's happening to them inside yeah A number of years ago, I wrote a book called The Eden Project, and it was referencing the fact that there is always in each of us a very deep, archaic desire to just meld into the other. That's what feeds the whole world of romance, after all. It's very compelling and very seductive. And, and, you know, in some way, that's like the child wanting to be brought back into the embrace of the nurturant parent. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, but when it prevails, it will produce uh, a a regressive relationship, a relationship of dependency. And again, not as one that, you know, supports the growth and development of each party. The same is true of jobs and so forth and friendships. If what you're doing, I mean, this is (laughs) pretty simple when you stop and pull back and look at it. If what you're doing is helping you grow and develop, then terrific. And you can tell the difference. Uh, and if it isn't, you better, you better reconsider a few things. Now, if, if I said to you, I, I'm seeing this couple, uh, do you think they should stay together or not? You'd say, well, I can't tell you. There's so many variables. Of course there are. In one case, the individuals need to work something through. That's how a relationship really does grow and, and get strengthened. In other cases, it was based on the wrong premises in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because it's certainly true that one is not the same person at 40 that one was at 20 or 25. Now, it doesn't mean that the relationship can't grow and evolve with those people. It often can and does, but sometimes it doesn't. So... Um, In the Eden Project, I I talk about how all relationships begin in projection. Now, by definition, projection is something intrapsychic to me. You say something, I see something, it triggers my psychological history. Hmm. And that energy is sufficient to leave me and go out into the world to fall upon you, upon an institution, upon a career, upon the other out there. Now, I don't know I've done that. It's unconscious. So I start relating to the other, not as they are, but as my projection allows me to see them. It becomes the lens through which I see them. 
The second stage is that because the other is other, sooner or later they start wearing away (laughs) some of the expectations of the projection. That's cognitive dissonance, it's called. You know, why, 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 why don't you line up with the way I'm expecting you to be? And again, this can be careers, friendships, institutions, but also intimate relationships. Thirdly, sooner or later, the otherness of the other will wear through that and cause sufficient disturbance that I will get caught in the power conflict. Well, let me line you up again. What's wrong with you? You've changed. You, you, you know, it's your fault, not my projection. I don't know that's happened. You're letting me down. You're disappointing me. How can I maneuver you back into control by overt controlling behaviors, passive aggressive behaviors? withdrawal, whatever. Fourth, sooner or later, the erosion of the projection and falls back into the unconscious. And if it stops there, and it does on most occasions, one says, boy, you're not what I thought you were, right? You let me down. What did you do? What did you fail to do? And you see, and we just go on and repeat the same dynamics with the next opportunity. The fifth stage, if it's going to occur, is, of course, that I make it conscious. I put that on you. What was I expecting of you? What was I asking of you? You see, then I realize that energy that I put out on the other has come back to me. What am I going to do with that? Now, let me give you a very concrete example. Hmm. One of the most common, is a cliche even, is the empty nest syndrome. When the last child leaves, the person the, the, the parent who's been very involved in them often sees a part of their own soul drive away, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And that happened to me when my last child came through town and, by the way, headed off to a strange place called Texas when she <laughs> lives in Dallas to this day. And, and I remember feeling that sense of loss and emptiness. And I said to myself, it's an old therapist trick, but you can try it at home. What would you say to one of your clients who said this same thing to you? And I knew immediately. I said, look, the energy that you've invested in that person was well spent. There she goes. Terrific. What if she weren't going? What if she was afraid to go into life because she'd picked up on fears? She's doing her journey. That's what she's supposed to do. Now, that energy's come back to you. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. So after a 20-year hiatus having written early because academia demanded, I hadn't written anything for two decades. So she's driving across the country and her little Honda. Uh, I, I started writing the middle passage about what we're talking about today, which was the first of another 17 books. And it's like that energy's come back. So there are different children metaphorically to be created here. So you have to realize when a projection fails, we usually want to blame the other. But we really need to say, well, that was that's, what do I need to learn about myself there? And in the Eden Project, I mentioned that there is an heroic question in every relationship that we need to address. And this question is, what am I asking of the other that I really ought to be looking at myself? Now, For example, if I'm expecting my partner to be the source of my um, sense of self, then 
that's something I'm not taking care of. That's not her business. It's my business. Now, I, I think it would be wrong to live with a person who continuously denigrates you, right, or ignores you, but I can't dump on the other, you know, my unfinished business. That's my job, not hers. It's actually a loving thing to ask this question. What am I asking of the other that I'm not addressing myself? When I address that, then I begin to take that back, and it lifts it off of my partner's shoulders. And that's one reason why I've, in a, another book recently, there's on, on living the examined life, there's a chapter there that caused an awful lot of people out there have to stick in the craw of their throat. And that was the chapter on the necessity of freeing your children from you. Yeah. Because everyone wants to think I'm a good parent. May not perfect, but I'm, I'm good, well-intended. It's a, well, maybe that's true and great for you. But it's natural to have expectations on our children, to burden them with our unlived life. Jung said the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. Because that's where the child is either going to be stuck or they're going to be spending their life getting unstuck. Or not being aware of the conflict, they'll be living a kind of failing treatment plan out there, such as a life of distraction or a life of addiction or, or whatever. So when we look at that, then you realize the best thing I can do for my child, in addition to providing them love and affirmation and food on the table and clothing and shelter, is to live my journey. Because that gives them the permission to live theirs. Once my, my son drove, at, when he finished college, he drove from Florida to Santa Fe, which he'd visited once before, fallen in love with it. And he drove across the country and I congratulated him for doing that. And he said, well, I was, this is literally what he said. I was allowed to live my journey because I saw you live yours. And I thought, well, some of the guilt I had for having my family in a foreign country, which was also a great experience for them, um, was just satisfied at that point because he, he got the message. You're here to live the journey, not stay close to shore and please your parents. Yeah. I, I'm glad we transitioned to that to some degree. I, I have heard you say in prior interviews that in, during your career, there has been a noticeable uptick in the percentage of your clients who are men. That uh -huh. when you started, as I understand it, I don't know exactly what the ratio was, but overwhelmingly, uh -huh. it was women who were coming to seek out your counsel and company and, and professional services. Mm -hmm. And now it's it's it sounded like it may have inverted where there it, it has. It was originally when I came back from Zurich and this would have been uh, late 70s. It was probably nine to one women. And today it's in my practice. I can't speak for other practices. Um, it's 90 percent men. And I think for a couple of reasons, I think men are even in more trouble now than um, than theretofore. And also, um, it's more acceptable today. Uh, it wouldn't have occurred to my father, for example, who could have been helped, I think, by therapy, to think other than what I grew up thinking. This was, was my belief at age 35 when I had my first hour. Um, you just haven't worked hard enough to figure this out yourself. It's, it's a false um, heroism, really. 
because that's the ego again in its tower defending itself rather than opening itself to say what is really asked of me now what what growth and change do, do i need to address you see so um you know men today by and large are psychologically adrift um they're they're angry and they don't know quite whom to blame um they've lost a sense of direction uh, most of them have figured out i want to go i don't want to go out and die for the corporation mm-hmm. the purpose of my life is not to manufacture widgets for somebody what 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 then is it about and it's an opportunity for <clears throat> an enormous amount of introspection and redefinition i just finished by the way a a, a film a non-profit film i think your your viewers can see it for a dollar 99 if you want it's it's uh called a um soulhealfilm.com and any money we make we're we're donating to charities to abuse women's uh, groups and also to uh, youth at risk and it's simply a 23 minute film on the subject of men facing themselves in this era and um <clears throat> you know <laughs> the the man who thinks machoism carrying a gun being a tough guy is what it means to be a man is a man who is terrified of his own shadow you know wheresoever you see machoism you see an enormous an infantile defense against inner anxiety because he's spending his life trying to even fool himself a man is a person you can put it very simply A man is a person who knows what he wants and he does it and and he didn't mean that in a narcissistic way he's talking about the immense task of personal discernment again from all of the cacophony of voices that come at me both from outside and inside which ones are really mine which ones are life enhancing now how do i go about living that in a in an honest way knowing that's going to require uh often sacrifice and persistence and courage and, and so forth so being an adult is it's not an easy thing it's not solved by hanging around till you have a big body or a big role in life it's about understanding i am in the end wholly responsible no matter what happened in the past i am responsible for the choices that are spilling out of me on a daily basis and for the consequences that begin to pile up on my children and upon uh my the world in which i live yeah why is it do you think that men are so adrift now you know i mean is it just that it's more acceptable to be open about deep concerns from the male gender or is there something else that's more specific to our times that's triggering this in your judgment well first of all i i think again because of the world that i was talking about before with those quote fixities yeah most most men felt it was the suppression of the inner world that would help make them a better man a better functioning man in the outer world well we know better than that um because that's what produces depression that's what produces all the alcoholism and and drug use that's what produces male rage and male violence because that's again a violence against one's own soul so it's bound to rebound in a violent way against that person as well so uh the invitation for a man today is to recognize his 
long-term guidance is going to come from within, as I was mentioning before. You have to pay attention to the feeling function. You have to pay attention to your energy systems. You have to pay attention to your dreams. You have to pay attention to the meaning questions. Because if you don't, you're, you're, you're going to be, you'll either be immobilized, and many young men are. A lot of young men are staying home with their folks, not just for economic reasons, but because they have no idea what they want to do with their life. And they assume that, that whatever that often middle class or upper middle class existence uh, provides for them, that, that it's sort of guaranteed in the Constitution rather than somebody had to go out and earn that, you see. So you have to, you have to sort of go back to the drawing board today in terms of what it means to be a man. I have a new book coming out in January called The Broken Mirror, which is about the difficulties of self-awareness. And in there is a chapter that looks like it's for therapists only, but it's not. Um, anybody can, can read it. And I look at what I call three different kinds of difficult therapy, ones with couples, ones with men, and ones with the philosophically immature. And all three of those groups of people are very hard to address psychologically. But in the question on men and the other two issues, what I do is provide a series of questions to be addressed. And those questions are designed to open up things from below and bring them to the surface and allow people to concern themselves with something larger than simply their goal-oriented behavior. You know, the elemental questions of life that historically were not even addressable because it was daily survival against the elements or hostile forces of one kind or another. The, by and large, by and large, for most people today, we have different questions that come to us. What is your life journey about? At this stage, it may have been a certain you know, response to the necessity of your environmental demands at an earlier stage of your life. But you're in a different place now. What is life asking you? And to give you an example, at 81, I am addressing specific questions every day about how do I balance diminished physical capacity, aging, illness, and the imminence of mortality with the work that I love, with other ways that I want to spend that energy, with having a, a viable intimate relationship with my wife. How do I juggle that? It's, it's juggling some things in a new way. And I'm trying to address it as consciously as I can. So, you know, at different stages, you have different questions. And, you know, how many times I've heard people say, well, I, you know, I, I want to do this or that, but, you know, I had all these obligations. Well, yeah, at midlife, I had all those obligations. I just worked extra hard. I borrowed money. I paid off that money. I did extra jobs. When I arrived in Switzerland and some of the loans that we had um, uh, requested were delayed in arriving, um, you know, I couldn't work legally. I didn't have a work permit. So I started uh, uh, cleaning houses and teaching English. Those were portable skills. And it was, it was not easy. I was a tenured professor in America, but I was cleaning people's bathrooms in Switzerland. And I never resented it or, or regretted it because I knew why I was there. I didn't know where it was going to take me, but I knew that's where I needed to be. So in time, you know, I was able to get 
work permits for for teaching at a higher level and so forth. So it, it all worked out. But that first year was very, very difficult. Yeah. So you go through something. If it's meaningful, you get through it. If it's not meaningful, there's no payoff ever. You know, you're just miserable all the time. I hear you. Uh, there, there's a uh, an imagery that I think I, I got from one of your books that I've recounted to friends of mine related to those middle passage moments where you uh, you kind of you know you've decided you're that you need to go in a new direction and you you've set your ship a sail into into the ocean and when you run into turbulent waters often the most natural thing to do when you don't know the new land that you might find is to return back to shore sure. and 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 to and to not endure and to not persist and perhaps the answer there is to uh try to generate some of that that endurance and courage to believe that the signal that you're receiving about whatever that transition might be for an individual is uh, worth honoring and persisting to uh, find the whatever might be next for you. I know we're getting uh, towards the end of the conversation, and I want to focus at the end of this on a word that I think you have mentioned twice, which is hero or heroic. And I know that in my understanding of Joseph Campbell's work, I know he's popularized or known for popularizing the phrase of the hero's journey um, mm-hmm. in our culture. And I think it's a, it's a valuable archetype or um, mm-hmm. theme to come back to in, in moments of anxiety or confusion. How do you address or think about that word in, in your own life or in your work that might be helpful for people who are dealing with fear, anxiety, uncertainty, confusion in their life. Certainly. Well, ironically, just this past um, weekend, I was teaching a book that Jung published in uh, 1912 called Symbols of Transformation, where he defines the hero archetype. And essentially, the hero archetype is the energy within us to take life's um, project on. Hmm. Um, I sometimes think for many folks, getting out of the bed in the morning is is heroic. Um, The ultimate enemies we have to fight are within ourselves. As I mentioned in the middle passage, each of us carries two great challenges to the conduct of our life. I, I imagine them as gremlins who sit at the foot of the bed that greet you every morning. The first is fear, who says, you know, it's too much for you. It's too big. You can't handle it, right? And the second is lethargy, um, the desire to go back to sleep, pull the blanket over our head, um, turn on the telly, have some chocolate, you know? And every day, our soul is up for grabs, metaphorically. Mm. And, And... those and what it's again, what it has to contend with are those two forces, fear and lethargy. There are challenges outside of us, of course, always, but it's what we bring to the table. It's it's our internal sort of um, sabotage, if you will, by fear and lethargy that keeps us from our journey. When you ask how I was able to persist going through this time in in Zurich, it was. Uh, For one thing, I I had experienced the depression of the former, and I didn't want to go back to that. 
But secondly, um, I knew somewhere, I felt somewhere, this is about living the questions that matter to you. And, you know, you live your questions honestly, and they'll take you to the places you need to go. And always the enemies are fear and lethargy. If you remember that, it, it reminds you to show up. In that uh, book, um, the, the um, Examine Life, I, yeah. I said there, I have a six-word motto. It's very, very concise. I say to myself every morning, if not literally, metaphorically, shut up, suit up, show up. Shut up is my reminder to myself, hey, Stop whining. There are people, a lot of people, who don't have a roof over their head. Think of those poor people who went through the hurricanes in in Kentucky and adjacent states. You know, they have no roof over their head. What are they going to do for food and shelter? You don't have anything to complain about. There are people whose children getting killed. You have nothing to worry about. Shut up. Second, suit up. Pay your dues. Work hard. You want something? Work for it. And thirdly, show up, not show off. Show up means just do the best you can. That's all life ever asks of you. Most people don't feel good about themselves, partly because they've, they've internalized too much some of the traffic from childhood, often from family of origin, sadly, but not always. And they all over-identify with the shortcomings the place where failure occurred, the place where um, fear or lethargy won the day. And the more we dwell on that, the more you could say, well, you're walking down the street backwards. Mm. Nobody would do that. That was foolish. You wouldn't know what you'd be walking into. It's like the enemy there is the self-doubt. And, and some doubt is healthy, but too much paralyzes and cripples. Every day, the heroic is your summons to show up as best you can. And that's always daunting and always challenging if you're really being authentic. If it isn't, then you're, you're caught in somebody else's life, you know, or you're just living a life of distraction. Yeah. Um, well, Jim, I want to say this has been a huge honor for me. I, I have benefited enormously from your work, and I know a lot of people have you, you were introduced to me by one of my best friends and it really did send me on a just personal journey in a new way of thinking and approaching life and i, I want to thank you for that because i think a lot of people feel that way and i know as you said you do a lot of your work after hours when there's a lot else you could be doing mm-hmm. um so i i really appreciate that and want to convey that to you in closing you know, if if there are any final words you might have for someone who has heard this conversation and something you have said has resonated with them about how unconsciously they might be living, how anesthetized or distracted they are, and they want to live a more examined, authentic life. What do you say to people like that? Well, first of all, let me say, Dan, it's been a privilege to be talking with you today. You've asked very, very good questions. And I truly hope these are the questions that might be helpful to folks listening here and there. Um, secondly, and this is very simple. Jung said once in a letter, life is a short pause between two great mysteries. Now, that's about as simplistic a statement as you can make, and yet it's profound. We're here a very short time. 
This is a pause from whence we come, whither we go. Nobody knows. Anybody who thinks they do is just whistling Dixie here. Come on. It's a mystery. And you best honor the mystery by allowing it to be a mystery. Mm. Meanwhile, what are you going to do with this pause? Again, this sounds so simplistic, but it takes all of your life to address it. What are you meant to do and be as a person? That doesn't mean outer fame. It doesn't mean wealth, privilege, status. We've seen enough folks have those things, and we understand how miserable their lives actually are when we get a chance to see that. The question is, how are you to live your life? What is meant to unfold in the world through you? In many ways, first half of life is what does the world want of me and how do I mobilize enough resources to meet those demands and expectations? Second half of life, the question is, what is wanting expression in the world through me? In other words, what am I here to serve? You know, I... I always thought of teaching as the central threat of my life and learning, of course, because that is the way I was, I think, wired to serve in this world. Um, And everybody has different wiring and you need to figure out what yours is and honor that and serve it. When you do, you will find something inside rises to support you. Jung said, maybe this is the final point. He said, we all need to find what supports us when nothing supports us. Hmm. And that, that's, <laughs> that really puts it, you know, there in a very mysterious and challenging, but I think a developmental way to what supports you when nothing supports you. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end. Um, Jim, thank you for this. It's, it's a privilege and an honor to do this. And uh, it was a wonderful meeting. You. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. I wish you well. You too, Jim. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show. 